This podcast is brought to you by Zen Educate, specialists in early years staffing. We save nurseries money on excellent early years practitioners through honest, transparent pricing. For 50% off your first day with Zen, call us on 020-3964-2566 or DM us on Twitter at Zen Educate. Over to June and Helen. Hello and welcome to 10 with Zen with your host, Helen Woodward. Our guest today is Juno Sullivan, MBE, CEO of the London Early Years Foundation, a social enterprise with 39 nurseries across London, providing around 4,000 childcare places. So June, I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Uh, With a background in early years and from being a single parent, I fully get the huge impact high quality childcare makes not only for children's learning and development, but also for the economic stability of families. And I'm struck by your quote, I wanted to build a social model of great nurseries which could operate in poor neighbourhoods and be truly outstanding. So we love the mission and the mission is great and the challenges I know are many. And that's what we'd really like to talk with you about today. So, June, we know there are uh, really big issues at the moment with recruitment in early year settings. Can you tell us what factors are contributing to that? Thank you for inviting me, Helen. It's always uh, a good opportunity to talk about my favourite thing, pedagogy, children, social enterprise and uh, child poverty. All three, um, and indeed all four, are completely intertwined into the, the question you asked me. So um, there are many reasons uh, for the pretty dramatic state of affairs in terms of recruitment. Now. You know, when you look at the TV, you think it was only really in the airports that we're having all of this uh, recruitment crisis. But actually, the sector has been experiencing this probably since the COVID reopening of, you know, post-COVID, but before that. So it tends to go back to 2016. So the first kind of problem we faced was when we had a particular minister who indeed is standing as prime minister, who introduced the idea of um, you had to have a GCSE in math and English as an entry point to the sector. And she was quite keen that everybody had that from that point. And we did actually try to explain to her that there would have to be a pipeline and it would have to take a while to get to that stage. But um, she wasn't overly keen on that idea and wanted to introduce it. And so did so and changed the law. And then it took two two other ministers to come and actually um, sort of in a way amend it, by which point we have the start of a really dry pipeline. And so effectively, if you needed a GCSE A to C in maths and English, you could also go to university. The perception, rightly or wrongly, is that if you went to university, you had more chance in your career, you'd earn more money, and therefore you would be in a better economic situation. The truth is now the evidence suggests that actually through the apprentice route, you may not, you may earn more than a graduate because with the graduation of the whole workforce, everyone's got a, a degree. So therefore, you know, it's now just a basic entry point. So that was the beginning, and that was 2016. Then we try, as I say, then took two ministers to to address that. So really, we're beginning to see the growth of opportunities in 2019 when then COVID struck. So then we went back to square one. The next thing that came along then was Brexit. And so a lot of the sector were relying on staff from Europe. In, in fact, we had already taken a number of Spanish staff. And the reason we had gone to Spain was because the qualifications of Spanish staff is most aligned to the UK. So it was a good place to go. And many nursery chains went there in both, and certainly in Ireland and also in England, because of that connection. Plus, our European uh, Spanish teachers 
have a similar kind of attitude to the work and um, they it was easier to integrate from that perspective. That's then with Brexit and COVID, we saw that change almost overnight where lots of our Spanish staff went back to their families, uh, probably sensibly now when we realized how long it was going to take. And then the Brexit rules uh, then kind of put some real barriers to entry around uh, you know, access, qualifications, income. Our Home Secretary then put a requirement of an entry point of 25 plus K to earn, to come back into the country to work. And despite many uh, missive to her, to try and make some flexibility around that or to identify early years as a sort of special case, that hasn't occurred. Therefore, a lot of the staff would earn just under that. Uh, it may have changed a little bit now because of the crisis, but, you know, when we were trying to kind of open that gateway, that was another barrier. Then COVID came and changed people's attitude to work. So fewer people want to work nine to six, five days a week. Some people moved and they had that already had been a bit of a pattern in London, but it was very much compounded with, with COVID, where people moved outside of zone six, really. And therefore, the transport, although decent, actually is expensive. So that became an issue as well. So the first real indicators we had of a crisis was central London, because nobody wanted to come into zone one, because that's the highest cost of of your uh, train fares um, and if you're getting buses which many people do because it's cheaper <clears throat> it takes a very long time to journey in so those things were were an issue that said during covid there was a glint of hope in the sector that actually parents really understood what we do and really began to realize the importance of not just the experience for their children but in terms of the wider e educational benefit and the economic support that offers that seems to have sort of dwindled a bit and with that the it kind of has almost confirmed a sense of depression i think amongst many people in the sector about the lack of understanding by the public of what we do and therefore a lack of status so you're talking here about sort of economic challenges and then a kind of emotional and and psychological impact of of some of those challenges on the sector and then finally um the sector is low paid now we know that much of that again is about economic contribution so the government contribution was locked in 2016 um and hasn't really increased i think the last increase we got was 17p so that's really not going to make a difference to the the cost of a place against the cost of a member of staff against what we earn which i think makes organizations like ours all the more important because of course the very children that need us the most, those in the disadvantaged background, have been most hammered by this because they're in areas where they can't really carry that shortfall of cost to contribution. And so that's really significantly important. So there are some of the big issues. Kind of more recently, what we've noticed, and I had a really helpful call the other day with Ofsted to get them to do more you know, examination of this. But what they're seeing is what I'm, we're also seeing, is that there's a complete and utter lack of level threes. And when you look at colleges, the pipeline into colleges is really low, if not at all. And while lots of colleges have kind of compromised and just run the health and social care qualification, the early years qualification is really like 
depressingly low. So, for example, one of my managers was talking about it the other day, and she said in her area, which is East London, they would normally have expected to have, say, 30 graduates at the end of this course, and they had 13. And certainly I was talking to someone from a college in southwest London who said they had just graduated six students, which is unreal for them. And so that's a problem because what that means is that in the EYFS, you need to have a balance of qualified, unqualified staff. Now, no one's going to disagree with that because we know from the research done by people like Aram Siraj and, you know, various colleagues along the way, that actually structural quality, you know, really depends on good quality ratios, childhood staff ratios and good quality staff. So therefore, no one disagrees with the idea of having qualified staff. And currently the ratio is 55%. Uh, qualified to the rest unqualified, which I always think was always too low and I always operated at 80-20. But right now, the people that are showing any interest in the sector at all and the people that are likely to stay are those who are unqualified. So my question yesterday was to Ofsted was how do we start thinking a little bit more loosely about how we balance what qualified to unqualified ratio need to look like so that we don't then have the consequence of exhausted staff who are covering the beginning and end of days, you know, who are carrying the, all the kind of key person responsibilities and who are having to operate in settings where either there are no agency staff, that there are very few bank staff and some of the caliber of some of the agency staff is very low. So therefore the pressure on you is exhausting. And so now we're facing staff who are tired. Sure. Okay, And that's another factor in why they're leaving now. So, you know, it's all built up into this picture of a pretty tired sector that feels unsupported, that is low paid and feels low valued. Okay, so you've given us a really, really comprehensive history there of what's been happening since 2016 in a sector which we know is absolutely essential for the economic stability of families and for the development of children and their education. So how is this now impacting on children and families? Well, I mean, the simple maxim is, you know, happy staff, happy children. So just again, just a little bit of context. So during COVID, when we weren't allowed to have families in and we were trying to, you know, manage through windows and gardens and, you know, video and uh, sort of non-touchy approaches, which is like very unusual and very unnatural in lots of ways, that saw an increase in complaints. Yeah. Because if you couldn't talk to a member of staff at the end of the day in the kind of natural way or just stand, you know, when you come and collect your child often and I mean I, I, I when I'm visiting I often have this experience with parents you sort of stand and chat and you're watching the child sort of finish their day and you know it's a kind of natural way of building trust and building a relationship mm. nobody really I think appreciated the importance of that and um, and when it went away I think everyone got very excited and there's lots of tech zealots out there who you know think all, ever, all answers to problems are, are dealt with by tech but actually the human soft skills interconnections or a trusting relationship is what missed and therefore we saw more complaints and offset confirmed that there weren't big complaints but they were the kind of complaints that could be easily resolved because they were often needing an explanation rather than anything else that we think is decreasing now that parents are back in the sector so that's a good thing because that was having a negative impact on staff who were like i can't deal with any more complaints you know we're doing our best and then you know they come in the evening june and all they're, they're you know all i get is emails you know about this that and the other and 
And so that's now eased up. So that's a good thing in terms of staff well-being and staff um, kind of motivation and positivity. Um, but the other thing is a lot of people now only want sort of to work shorter hours, flexible hours. And while you can do that for a cohort, you can't do that for the whole organization because parents still need to work between nine and six and children still need that stability of regular people in their in their lives and the bond between a child and his teacher is in particularly in the early years in terms of an early years teacher is really strong and you know for a lot of children especially the areas we operate in where you know 77 percent of our nurseries are in areas of disadvantage you know the stability of the nursery is really important because when you're living in an area of poverty and when you're dealing with poverty you know it stresses parents the instability of not knowing you know how you're going to feed your children and what's going to happen and how you're going to pay your rent and all those kind of pressures on you where you have no movement, you have no margin to work with it, causes stress. And the stress is represented in the relationship with the child and the parents. So for us to be there as a stable place where parents can be honest and say they're feeling stressed and not be judged, and the children love to come because it's a safe place and they're, they're fed, that's the other thing. We have to make sure we feed them. Not all children in poor areas get fed. Mm. Uh, lots of nurseries add quite a lot of money to the fees as a top-up because they can't afford the place. So they make the place unaffordable by charging quite a lot of money for food or additional services. Um, we, we don't do any of that because that means the child is kind of excluded are relying on a packed lunch. And for a lot of those children, that's not the healthiest option for them. So you have this kind of, you know, emotional kind of pressure on nursery teachers who are trying to manage those kind of things that are bigger than them, plus managing their own circumstances, because they're also being hit by increased utility bills, increased um, cost of living, increased food costs. And in the sector, you know, and, and I think the majority of the sector want to do well by their staff, really finding it difficult to increase their salaries, because if you do that, you have to raise the fees, which then is counterproductive, because then the parents carry that, that sort of, you know, additional burden. So, so that kind of stress, I don't think people realize how, how uh, nursery sort of teachers and nursery managers feel that. And try and have tried to navigate that. And, you know, the LEAF staff have got the benefit of a central office team, to, to, which is designed in its entire purposes to, you know, support them and to be available to them and to advocate for them and to try and help them to, you know, manage through that and give them guidance and advice and systems and all the other stuff. But imagine you're just a standalone nursery mm -hmm. or there's only one or two of you and you're there on your own trying to work all of those tensions out. Is it any wonder? that you give up and is it any wonder that the statistics show very obviously to us that areas of deprivation are losing their nurseries much more quickly mm, mm, okay so Gina I mean you it's so interesting listening to you and the the breadth and the complexity of what you're working with is is really clear um, and it leads me to want to ask you a, a follow-up question that has kind of two aspects to it really because um, I'm interested to hear about the practical solutions that you're using um, both in terms of managing the um, covering the staff shifts and covering the nursery day because I understand that's a long day because as you've said you know parent hours don't change so nursery nursery hours need to be you know I'm guessing you do what seven thirty till six um 
8 to 6, sometimes 8 to 6.30, occasionally 7.30 to 6.30. Depends, we kind of respond to parent need, but in fact, they have shortened their days. So, but what we have are lots and lots of, uh, you know, sort of groups of parents doing different shifts and, you know, the intensity of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where everybody wants to be in the nursery, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so I've got a question about solutions. One is covering the lengths of the nursery day. Uh-huh. And the other is, and you've you've started to talk about this, but I'm really interested to hear a bit more about how you're supporting staff kind of well-being and growth, professional growth during this during this time, because the stability that you're so and again, I remember this so clearly as a parent, you know, that that the stability of the nursery was absolutely key to to being able to carry on earning a living, going to work each day. And, and keep paying the bills you know we couldn't manage without that nursery a huge shout out actually to educare in manchester because they were brilliant as well um so yeah how are you managing those two things okay let's take them separately even though like i said to you earlier everything is interconnected so um last christmas a colleague of mine lala manners and i wrote a book on well-being so the first thing we wanted to think about and i was having a cup of tea with her and i was saying to her you know the thing about well-being is often people see it as going to the gym or something after work or before work. But actually, when you think about the pedagogy that we certainly operate, well-being is woven through this for the children. So what I wanted to do was really look at what they do in the day that's good for them as much as it's good for the children. Sure. So we 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 wrote this book, which um was really helpful, I think, for us to understand what what amendments to the narrative of being an early years teacher could we make? So like when, you know, the importance of understanding your sense of self and your own positive body image was a really important thing because a lot of our staff, they lack confidence about who they are and what they do. And that status thing, you know, stereotype thing, you know, nice but dim, you know, that kind of stuff does not help. You know, you play with children all day. Yes, and play is a science, a small word that describes a deep, deep science about how children learn, you know, um, but people don't get that. So, so we wanted to look at that. So we started with looking at a sort of, you know, starting right at the beginning, your sense of self, your sense of positivity, you know, who you are. And then we went right through to, you know, uh, physical development, um, you know, when you're doing play with the children outside, you know, you also get out of breath because it's good for you. When we, we thought about nutrition, you know, I don't know if you know, but I've been campaigning on, on good nutrition for a long time. And I set up the first early year chef academy because I felt that, you know, with child poverty often is also aligned with child obesity. And so how do we address that? It's such a big complex issue. But one simple way to do it was to really look at what do our chefs do? And what I discovered was there was no proper training for our chefs. So developed all of that. And then we set up our chef academy, which is now going very well, to train the chefs. And that was very interesting because in training them, we are training the staff about good nutrition for themselves and, you know, portion control and all of that sort of stuff. Not in that kind of way of going on a diet or joining Slimming World, but actually about just minor changes to the way you think about things. We do yoga with the children. We have done for a long time. And what I wanted the staff to do was to them also enjoy it. So when you're doing this kind of stuff, that's also good for you as is good for the children. When you lie in the garden and just listen to the leaves or just hear the birds or just enjoy, that is good for you also. You know, so it was really about defining what do you do in the day that's linked to our, we have a seven strand pedagogy. 
that also means is as good for you as it is as good for the um, for the child. So what we did in that book was to extrapolate that out and pull those things through. And what we found, of course, is that staff do well when they feel engaged and warm and looked after and positive and valued. And so that really was how we wrapped that around. So that was the first thing we did. We also started to drill much more into our understanding of inclusion. I thought we were pretty, pretty good on inclusion for children, but does it filter through? Does it, what does it mean? My thinking was, if you're not inclusive, you don't build diversity. You just won't. But if you're inclusive, then by its very nature, you start to encourage you know, people from different parts of the world, you know, different um, local kind of communities, all of that, getting much more involved. Um, you also need some proactivity around it. But what I'm saying is that when you create that kind of culture, it tends to build itself, which is what we found in our organization. So in fact, Nasheen and I wrote a book on diversity and inclusion because we just wanted to celebrate some of the stuff that we do with children that's also good for adults. So like every time you think about doing these things, think about how it's also going to benefit you. So that was the way we approached it, a really quite practical way. On a more intellectual way, I worked with Mona Sacker from the University of Middlesex and we wrote a book about social leadership and about identifying the complexities of actually leading a sector and the importance of it being taken seriously because I wanted to give credibility to the sector that actually what you do is very important it matters a great deal and so that was just the way of us reflecting those thoughts in a, a book with um, engaging lots of people from the sector through a kind of piece of research so we were looking therefore at leadership at well-being at championing the kind of joyful bits of our work, such as diversity and inclusion. Again, I've done lots and lots of campaigning on men in childcare, because I firmly believe you need to have women behind them to, to actually make it happen properly. And then we obviously looked at salaries. Because we're a social enterprise, we're not driven by dividend or profit in that way. So every penny we earn, I either split it amongst the staff or the children, and usually try and do both. This year, we put it all against the staff, feeling that that really was where the need was. Um, and so we, we were able to give a bonus and a pay rise. We gave, um, you know, your birthday off. We already have a very generous pension because the sector is mostly female and women live longer and often are on their own, you know, in their old age. So to be old and poor is pretty terrible. So I've always paid about 8% towards the pension and always done that and then encouraged them to pay more in so you know all of those things um so kind of like big picture behind the scenes stuff as well as the obvious stuff is what we thought about and um we have a council in the in the organization so the staff council is very important because it gives you um their voice you know the importance of what people are saying and the staff yeah. survey the staff survey was pretty honest actually wow the three main things that came up were <laughs> feeling tired and you know their well-being what could we do more pay if you could i mean they all said thank you so much for what mm -hmm. you've given us can you give us any more well they know we will as soon as i can i will um can we make the progression in the organization even clearer because it, it, sometimes people don't know that you can enter leave at le a level one and you can leave as with, with you know with your honors degree and just making that journey clearer and then there was a kind of message to us across the leadership to make absolutely sure that every touch point that new staff feel, and that includes apprentices, is really clear and warm and that people understand that, you know, how you treat people when they arrive, even when you're busy and, you know, you've just been waiting for these staff for ages and you're desperate to allocate them out a bunch of key children and, you know, you just want them to get on. That is very important. 
particularly as some of our newest staff coming through have never been in a nursery. So they've been trained online, examples have been online, they've actually come away with no real practical experience. And while they've been maybe doing studying for two years, it's only in terms of length of months, it's not in terms of maturation and experience that drives that maturation process. So they haven't been in a nursery, they haven't worked with people, they haven't learned to deal with conflict, they haven't worked with having to stay extra, they haven't built those kind of emotional resilience and you know, kind of um, understanding of how to build empathy to work with other people and see things from that point of view till they get into the nursery after their two-year training. And then they're completely freaked out because uh, the reality is, you know, you takes a while. And when you're training, you're not in the nursery all the time. So you get a nice balance between being, whether you're online or in your university class or your college class or your wherever, but, and then going into work and, you know, taking something from work and thinking about it and maybe doing a piece of action research and coming back and testing it. When you go in, like having spent two years on a screen, the reality is completely overwhelming. And so that's been the consequence, I think, for lots of staff. So well-being has to have then, it has to be multifaceted. And I think that's what we're continuing to do and continuing to listen and continuing to think about other ways we can manage that. Mm. June, you've given us an absolute whirlwind tour of everything around early years policy and how that's impacted on what's currently happening with recruitment, um, the impact for children and families, particularly in the economic climate that we're in, and some of the really wonderful, actually I'm inspired listening to you, solutions that you've been developing around staff wellbeing and progression. I started off with an NNEB and left school at 16. So, I, you know, progression for people that have left school without their A-levels and perhaps don't go to university till later. You know, I wave the flag for that one quite, quite frequently and regularly. It's a good one to hear. It's a good one to hear. There is progression. You can have an early years qualification and you can progress. I'm going to ask you just for one one more comment, really, I think. If you if you had one message that you wanted to give to early years staff nationally, what would you share? Well, I'm I'm going to just be cheeky here and have one message and one call to action, if that's all right. Go for it. Go for it. So the message is believe in yourselves, consider yourselves teachers, stop you know, messing around with educators and practitioners, believe in what you do. You know, you are actually a teacher of small children, the most important group of children in the whole education system. And so, you know, step up and believe in yourself and own early years teaching as a very valid and wonderful profession and use the language of teaching. And then my call to action is, let's come together with a blank sheet of paper and in a way answer the question you also asked Helen and think about what we can do differently within the context of the EYFS about how we allocate places, how we think about using qualifications, how we think about allocating qualified staff, how we can kind of be flexible in what we do. And I have already spoken to Ofsted and they're very open to this kind of conversation. So I'm going to launch a round table on the 19th of September okay. with Ofsted and the DFE and people who are running nurseries and look at this with a completely fresh set of eyes and think, now what can we do within the context that doesn't devalue our responsibilities and our the importance of what we do with the children, that doesn't make us feel unsafe because we're changing things radically, 
but that actually gives us some control over how we interpret the way we allocate and delegate our staff so that we can manage the day more effectively. So that will be an invitation via my blog to everyone on the 19th of September to actually come with this creative possibility. You can, but I would advise that you read the EYFS very carefully first and see where are the where is the room for some interpretation and flexibility. June, that's, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. And we've heard those two things, believe in yourself and the call to action around how do we look at how do we look at the current policy and guidance and look at what flexibility and creativity there is, which enables everyone to get the best possible outcomes for children and young people? Lovely. Okay. Thank you so much, June, for being our guest today. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on 10 with Zen. This podcast is brought to you by Zen Educate, specialists in early years staffing. We save nurseries money on excellent early years practitioners through honest, transparent pricing. For 50% off your first day with Zen, call us on 020-3964-2566 or DM us on Twitter at Zen Educate. Thanks for listening.